Welcome to the Classic Anglican Podcast. Join us as we explore classic Anglicanism through thoughtful and informative conversation within the bounds of the Christian faith once received. I'm your host, Canon Zachary. Today, our guest is the Reverend Joey O'Dell, who serves as a chaplain lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. He holds an MDiv in theology from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, an MA in psychology from Moorhead State University, and a BS in chemistry from the United States Military Academy. He's been married to his wife, Carrie, for 20 years, and they have 15 children. His book, Faith is Not Blind, was published by Westbow Press in 2018. Father Joey, welcome back to the podcast from the American Airlines Lounge in the Charlotte Airport. Thank you, Zach. Uh, it's great to be back with you. And just to clarify for our listener, um, that was 15, one, five children uh, is how many Carrie and I have. Um, and that's because when you find something you're good at, you should do more of it. So um, that's where we are. We have 15 and we're happy to share them with the world. There we go. And uh, so, yeah, my, my Southern English can sometimes sound like 50 instead of 15. And we want to clarify because we our listener will give us some mail. And by the way, we share a listener uh, probably with another famous podcast. So ju- jumping in, Father Joey, um, you and I are going to launch into a discussion today about uh, a way of thinking that keeps rearing its head in Anglican circles. And in particular, it keeps rearing its head in the false dichotomy between pastoral and uh, exegetical theology, and more on that a little bit later. But our topic today centers around moralistic therapeutic deism. So, Father Joey, can you give us a bumper sticker definition of what moralistic therapeutic deism, and for the sake of just brevity, we'll call it MTD, uh, and then let's dig a little deeper into its history and de facto beliefs. Absolutely, uh, Kanazak. So uh, MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, is a, to- is a uh, term coined by uh, Christian Smith and um, several years ago. And, and just to break down what the words mean, moralistic means that there, there are some morals that this God holds to. Um, it's thera- this God is therapeutic because generally all this God seems to be able to do, the God of MTD, is to be able to impact your feelings generally giving you positive feelings for whatever situation you're in. And deism is just, you know, that the God exists. So it's a God who exists, who operates primarily in the role of uh, feelings, and who has some moral standards of some kind that he's interested in us complying with. But one of the first things we find about MTD is that the morals are uh, kind of squishy, um, they're not well established, and they seem to be largely based upon what the external culture believes should be our morals. And so, whereas a culture in the uh, 17th century would have had its morals firmly centered upon uh, scriptural standards and upon church tradition, refining those standards and making them clear for application in our lives. Current uh, morals therapeutic theism aligns morals more with, um, you know, something like be like political, social justice, or perhaps uh, affirmation of who people are, who they claim to be, or their actions, not an actual external standard that stands against us. So the moralism, despite the fact that it's being attributed 
to God, to an eternal being, is actually generated uh, by us and by our culture. And so that, that, that creates some problems when we're trying to live a Christian life in a world in which God is assumed to be the God of moralistic, therapeutic deism. And, and what I'll tell you before we move on is that if you ask a guy with 15 kids for a bumper sticker definition, just realize that his vehicle is much larger than the average vehicle. <laughs> so now that was a great rundown. I really, I really appreciate it, Father Joey. And uh, Roman Catholic Bishop Robert Barron calls this kind of faith beige Catholicism. In mm-hmm. other words, it's a faith that seeks to be non-offensive, a belief system that blends in with the secular value of relativism. Mm-hmm. You know, another way to approach this, uh, another way uh, that this approach to faith is characterized is nicism or niceanity. But, you know, Father Joey, one of, uh, one of the things that we see in the fruit of the Spirit is being kind. So what's, what's so wrong with being nice? I mean, how is that different from uh, this and, and, and just being nice? Honestly, Kanazaka, I think that's the perfect question, because why should we be nice in the first place? Where does this idea come from that I should be nice to my neighbor? What is the authority that determines that I should be nice? And you and you mentioned the fruit of the spirit, that the kindness is one of the fruits of the spirit. Um, several years ago at Notre Dame, uh, Attorney General Bob Barr, as part of the commencement address, said that what we call values today are really just nothing more than mere sentimentalities still drawing on the vapor trails of Christianity. And I think that helps us understand how we got to where we are, is the values that our culture is raising up are drawn out of Christianity And yet they reject the very authority of not just a Christian church, but of of the God of the Bible, of a creator God who establishes his standards and requires that we conform to them. Um, And so that's a situation that we're in where this niceness, which is assumed only is something we should even consider if Christianity is entirely true. So, uh, what we've seen is that, uh, Many of the concepts that are central to the Christian faith and generate everything else, uh, the doctrine of Scripture, um, the un, uh, the the fact that truth cannot be misrepresented, be misrepresented, but it's still then it's not true. Um, tr- the Trinity, holiness, sin, grace, justification, sanctification, um, the the Church as the supernatural body of Christ, even. Uh, the eschatological concepts of heaven and hell, they've all been pushed to the side. Those are no longer considered important, even by many people who consider themselves Christian. And sadly, even among many of those who are Christian clergy. And instead, they've been separated with niceness and happiness and merit, merit which is judged by the culture. And so this, uh, requ- there's a requirement, not that we're just nice, but that we're affirming of whatever it is our neighbor wants to do. That's the ultimate in love. The word love is used in a completely non-scriptural, non-Christian way to mean I just say that whatever my neighbor's doing is okay, which removes the responsibility from me to confront him and removes the responsibility from them to conform to God's law. Um, so it's a real problem. 
And I'm glad you brought that up, particularly about the idea of love. So uh, just this past week, there was an article that was in Anglican Inc. Uh, by Stephen Cottrell, where he reported on the Archbishop of York saying something along the lines of, we are not judged by doctrinal orthodoxy, but by love. Um, and, you know, we even have some things that really bothers me. I think it bothers you. It bothers others in, in our jurisdiction as well, mm-hmm. that we have some priests within the ACNA who are unwillingly, unwittingly uh, using MTD in their language. And um, and I, I don't think the Archbishop of York is unwittingly using <laughs> this language. Uh, that, that's part of why there was a big meeting uh, in Kigali this, this past week with a very bold statement that we'll probably have an episode on before too long as we break down that, that statement for us as Orthodox yeah. Anglicans. You know, I don't believe for a minute, though, that our serious priest would say that they believe in a cosmic therapeutic God or an amorphous faith. However, sometimes some of our priests are using vocabulary uh, that is surrounding this God un- unwittingly, and uh, you know they they may be engaging in some things where they quote maybe uh, some ex-evangelicals that they're maybe not fully aware of that these guys are flirting with this stuff, and it and it sort of seeps into their their DNA. Uh, we mentioned one before, but I think this is one of the examples that really that really gets me is where there's this false dichotomy between pastoral and exegetical theology, as if they're two different yeah. things. No, I, I, absolutely, Kenneth Zach, um, and and I I would tell you that this comes back to the same old human temptation to sin of desiring the acclaim of men over the acclaim of God. Um, when you are in the profession of the cure of souls, when you're a clergy member, you want to be respected. You want to be accepted. You want to have opportunity to speak into the culture and the community around you. And it seems like on the surface that the way to do that is kind of conform what you're saying to what those outside the church are saying, to what those who are in the institutions of academia or the media, or uh, as you mentioned, you know, whatever is the, um, you know, the, the big evangelical pastors on Instagram are saying, and kind of try to use their language to communicate the historic truths of the faith. But the problem is that that, that language, that culture, those institutions, they're already dead set against the gospel. Um, I saw the other day a Facebook post from R.R. Reno. He's an editor of First Things Magazine, and he said, the recession of Christianity as a most prominent cultural power in our society deprives people of access to the mechanisms of repentance, atonement, and forgiveness. And, and what this does is it creates that false dichotomy you're talking about between pastoral and practical theology, because there is no repentance, atonement, and forgiveness. All there is is performance. There's external performance to prove that you are good enough to be listened to, to prove that you really, really love your neighbor, to prove that you really are someone who cares for the downtrodden and wants those who are suffering oppression to, to overcome it. And it's a nonstop demand for performance, and there, there's no end to it. And, and that's the end result of this false dichotomy. I mean, if, if someone asked me, Kenneth Zach, what, what do you recommend for pastoral theology, uh, Reverend Joey? I would say 
pray the litany. You want some Amen. pastoral theology, pray Amen. the litany. Be confronted with your own sin and desperate need for forgiveness. Um, you know, we just had the Lenten season, and we're celebrating the Easter season. And um, at the very beginning of the Lenten season, we have you know our Ash Wednesday service. And you go back and you look at that that uh, that combination for the first day of Lent in the 1662. Man, that just brings you back to realizing how desperately I am in need of forgiveness. How much I need to repent. How much I need uh, the atonement. These things are what is the center of our pastoral theology and practical theology. The theology that comes from the scriptures, it comes from the, the great tradition of the church and, and time and space, that the truth that has always stood against the idols within ourselves, you know, proclaiming that we are little gods and we will determine what is authoritative. Um, that, that's what we need to do. We return to uh, the foundational elements of our faith. As the Apostle Paul says, as he lists off a litany of sins and says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. It is Christ that makes us acceptable, not my performance, according to what my uh, secular neighbors may think. And you bring up a good point to look at the litany, and the litany you know, brings us to a place where we see that we are sinful, Right. And mm-hmm. and th- especially as priests, when we know that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, uh, you know, it it helps us also to have empathy and sympathy for others, but also yes. to live into you know last week's scripture that we that we had in in uh, the gospel, where Christ breathes on the disciples and says uh, that if you withhold forgiveness, it will be withheld. If you extend it, it will be given. And so now, mm-hmm. not because we are given that power, God has is the only one who has the power to forgive sins, but we are obligated to perform that sacramental of being able to proclaim forgiveness into people's lives or yes. to protect them from thinking that they are forgiven when they're not and withholding that sacramental in order that they might come to a saving knowledge of Christ and to a fullness of their their own forgiveness. Absolutely. Um, I'm right now. I'm reading. I'm going to do a review for the upcoming Anglican Journal, uh, the Contemplative Pastor by Eugene Peterson, and he has this section where he talks about like our temptations as shepherds of our flocks to forget like the the basics of theology that of course our people are sinners and to want to do as Bonhoeffer says to become an accuser of the brethren and complain about how our people are and I'm uh, ministering to uh, a fellow clergy member here in the area who's gone through some tough times he's talking to me about some of the challenges of his church and it reminds me that it's one of course our people are sinners um, just like I'm a sinner. Now, they may be a different kind of sinner than me, but that need for repentance, atonement, forgiveness, for salvation through Christ, um, that we find that centered in our formularies, centered in the historic prayers of confession, reminding us all through the Bible, Old and New Testament, and that's where we need to stand to confront the challenges that seem to come from outside the Church, like MTD, is stand upon what we know is true, what has always been true, and always known and accepted by the Church in all places at all times. We talk about lists of sins quite a bit, and you know, I, I, I think people tend to think that those of us in a more conservative, orthodox, evangelical Christian framework, 
pick out our hobby horse sins. Um, I think a, a, a more fair view of that would be that we're many times responding to error in the church. And it's not that we necessarily have hobby horse sins, but that these are being presented at this time. Uh, but there's one list that I find particularly compelling in Revelation 21.8. Uh, it has a long list of sins, but the first one that it lists is the cowardly. And, and I truly believe that this is, this is pointed straight at us as clergy when we are unwilling to stand firm in the faith and to not fall into this relativism uh, or, or fall to the feet of this uh, moralistic, therapeutic, uh, deist uh, God that has been invented and, and somehow think that that's going to get us all through. But we have to have the guts to just stand up and say, hey, this is, this is not the truth. And, and we care enough about you uh, to be more than just kind. Um, C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain talks about that if, if the I, modern idea of love is just simply kindness, there, there's a lot of pain that you can go through uh, just by me merely being kind around you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and that the the absence of pain uh, is is not the definition of love, and kindness is not the full definition of love either. No, it's not only not the full definition; it is a deliberately um, twisted and short definition. It is, as I tell others, it, it results in just moral relativism because you're accepting and kind to all who are around you, no matter what they're doing. It just results in like two two benefits for me. I don't have to confront you, and I can do what I want. There you go. Um, and <laughs> and 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 uh, I know you're aware of Smith's work on the subject, um, and, and some of the uh, those who have commented on his work um, about how this has uh, kind of shaped the church that we're in. And part of the challenge is that moral therapeutism deism did not. Ar- didn't arise just on its own. It didn't come out of nowhere. It's actually built into the culture we live in where these kinds of values are being pushed as what's most important. That, that almost leads to moral therapeuticism. It's almost a circular um, relationship between these uh, values that are being pushed upon us and telling us to keep our mouth shut about the truth and the acceptance of some of the things, some of the really disturbing things that are happening in our culture right now. So I, I'm going to get to kind of what we ought to be offering instead, which is, should be obvious, but I, I think we we might have to break it down a little bit. Uh, but there's also some objection to, oh, MTD is is so, you know, 90s um, pearl clutching. Um, you know, it's really not what the church needs to be worried about today. Uh, Al Mohler wrote an article in 2005 outlining Christian Smith's work on the subject uh, in the lives of American teenagers. And Mohler wrote this, uh, is this therapeutic age, in this therapeutic age, human problems are reduced to pathologies in need of a treatment plan. Sin and shame are simply excluded from the picture and doctrines as central as the wrath and justice of God are discarded as out of step with the times and unhelpful to the project of self-actualization. Now that uh, that was in 2005, but now we have gender transitioning and detransitioning. Uh, we're not even a part of the mainstream vocabulary at the time. Things 
Uh, we never anticipated becoming subjective or now part of a monolithic goo of contemporary non-reality reality. Uh, and here's uh, where Moeller and others back in 2005 were preparing us for today. Society sees almost every human problem as a pathology. If, if there's a hunger in the world, it's, it's a pathology of capitalism. If there's suffering in the world, it's a pathology of patriarchy. If there are victims in the world, then it's the result of a pathology of oppression. Uh, but the Christian faith, the church Catholic, the Anglican tradition doesn't see the world this way. Rather than co-opting this MTD vocabulary, what should our priests be offering instead, Father Joey? Yeah, no, uh, this question comes at the perfect time um, because uh, other people can't exact don't know that this interview has been delayed a couple times. But since uh, we first got together and discussed, uh, talked about this subject uh, to present in the podcast, um, a little church near us, uh, the pastor had his wife die. And uh, I went in and preached a sermon after the funeral. And I preached from Ezekiel 24. And uh, those of our, you know, if, if our listener has uh, been reading his Old Testament lately, he knows that Ezekiel 24 is when Ezekiel's wife dies. And what happens is Ezekiel's wife dies. God commands Ezekiel not to do all of the typical cultural elements of mourning. He is not to do that. He said, go out the next day and act like nothing has happened. And what happened is Ezekiel's wife died. And then Ezekiel does as he's commanded. And the people come to him and say, what does this mean for us? What, what, what does this mean? Like, it seems to be like no compassion on their part. And for years, I looked at it and said, well, what is wrong with these people? Let me never be like that. But what I realized lately, as I've seen what's going on in our culture and how we treat uh, the, the scriptures, how we treat the commands of God, how moralistic therapeutic deism has dominated the culture and continues to, I see that what's going on there in Ezekiel 24 is people who see the world completely differently. They see something happen, something that's bad, and they say, what is God telling us in this? We see something bad is happening, and we're ready to do anything but proclaim that we might have something to do with what's going wrong. It's like you said, we want to blame the patriarchy. We want to blame capitalism. We want to blame the government. We want to blame a particular people group, anything. But wow, God is judging us. God is judging me. Maybe I'm suffering because of what I'm doing. Now, of course, all suffering isn't because of the sin of the individual is therefore suffering. Like we know that from the scriptures. Um, but sometimes it is. And this is how far we've come, you know, from a historic prayer of confession that says there is no help in us. God have mercy upon us, miserable offenders, to the idea that whatever I'm suffering is someone else's fault and I have no responsibility or any sins to answer for. Like, you know, that's, that's the difference. And so what should we be offering instead? What should we be saying instead of parroting the MTD that's in uh, the ocean that we're swimming in? Um, as I already mentioned, the uh, historic liturgy, faithful preaching of the scriptures. Um, Kendra Creasy Dean uh, wrote a book called Almost Christian based off Christian Smith's work. And she identified that in young people in particular, when you find those who are adhering to orthodoxy and the true faith, what, what, what can we identify about them? But one of the things she identifies is that they have a personal and powerful story about God, the power of story. We're not just teaching facts about God. We're not just giving a list of sins. We're not just talking about history. 
We're telling the true story of redemption, of redemptive history through Jesus Christ. Um, they belong to a significant faith community. The Anglican Church is all about community, uh, the literature is a participative worship, and around that centers everything within our communities. And we have healing groups and study groups and ministry groups. Like being a part of that is something else we have to offer. Uh, the sense of vocation, young people. You know, I'm an, I'm an army chaplain, uh, uh, Ken Zachary, and so many young people have no sense of purpose. A lot of them join the military looking for that purpose, and it's great that. In many ways, the Army or the Air Force or, you know, the Navy, in the case of those who must settle, um, does offer a sense of purpose. But it's still not fulfilling, and it ends with the organization. If your organization's gone wrong, then that's not there. So we need to show them who they are in Christ, how they contribute to his kingdom, how they can minister to and help them minister to those around them. And lastly, um, these people possess a profound sense of hope. At the end of the day, that's what we have. There is no hope in MTD because there is no meaningful suffering in MTD, not of ourselves and not of Jesus. And so we need to bring that word of hope to the people in our parishes, to the soldiers, sailors, and airmen around us, uh, to those whom we minister to in our community uh, today and every day. That's what the faith once delivered to the saints offers to people who are suffering today. And as we think about and wrap this wrap this up, I, I keep coming back to in our current cultural moment what Paul spoke to the Romans in chapter one about God's judgment, and you know we we have the ultimate judgment that we are all going to face, and either you will be covered in the blood of the Lamb, you will be identified as Christ, or you will be identified as Antichrist. There's there's no middle ground there. And so, but what we are in the meantime, not just for the eternal realities that we face, but in the meantime, we see God's judgment being laid on uh, folks who are living in this relativist shame. And, and we want them to know that there is something better, not only in the life to come, but in this life now. They don't have to be within the constriction point of a self-eating snake of being turned over to a reprobate mind, but they can have, as Paul later goes on to talk about, there can be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be renewed uh, by the transformation and and the um, the the absolutely metamorphosis of their mind by the power of God. Well, I think that you and me and our dear listener hit the beach today and even fought inland a bit on MTD. Uh, if you want to explore this subject more, we're going to include some links in, in the show notes. Thank you for hanging with us with a little bit of noise because uh, we had to do this on the road with the, with the airport. And Father Joey, thanks so much for making this a great discussion and making this happen today. Absolutely. Thanks again for the invite, Ken Zachary. It's always a pleasure. Uh, it's always a blessing. And I pray that uh, what we've discussed today is a blessing to our listener as well. And I look forward to hopefully hearing some feedback. You've been listening to the Classic Anglican Podcast. We look forward to being with you during our next episode. To learn more, join us online at www.anglicanchaplains-etf.org. Until then, stay strong in the Christian faith once received.
and keep Anglicanism classic.